Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Paul M., Cyril O., and Brent S. Returning to the show is Brian Lax, Portfolio Manager and Partner at Old West Investment Management. Old West is a value-focused, long-short, and special situations capital group based in Los Angeles, California. You can learn more at their website, oldwestim.com. Brian, welcome back to the show. Hey, Andrew. How you doing? Good. How's things in the People's Republic of California these days? Uh, you know, it's the uh, same as it ever was. We're trying to get along. It's, it's still the People's Republic, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think that that won't change for a while. <laughs> well, what's been happening at Old West uh, during 2019 and how is performance coming in so far? Uh, we're doing pretty well. You know, it's 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 been a good year. Um, you know, it's, it's tough to compete with, you know, a market that just keeps rocketing up and up and up every day. But, you know, we're, we're doing all right. Some of the things that we've been holding on for a while uh finally starting to do well you know we have a pretty big position in gold that's had a nice move this year um we've had a couple of names that uh you know have have really started to do well that we were you know had had held on for a while you know i think actually one of the names we talked about last time, i think it was about a year ago i was on your show was was end phase uh, you know and it had gone from one to four and we were talking to them and it was, a, it was a huge run and you know this year it went from four to 30 so it's it's been a, it's been a pretty wild ride for for some of these things and you know, I remember last last year when we talked about it, you, we were talking about some of the timing and, you know, how when we got in, you know, I think it was, I don't know, maybe a buck 50 or so. And it had gone down over the next few months all the way below a dollar. And, you know, it's tough when you're looking at a name like that and you see you're down kind of 30 percent plus and, you know, starting to question your thesis and wondering, uh, you know, should we get out of this thing? Are we doing the right move? And then, you know, you fast forward a couple of years and you're up, you know, 30 times. So. I think maybe let that be a lesson that, you know, early is not always wrong. I mean, sometimes it is, but, um, you know, as long as you have conviction in the thesis, these things, these things play out. And, you know, I guess the biggest criticism that I get from, from my team is, you know, why did, why, why were we trimming it on the way up? We should have held this thing. It would have been, would have been a monster, but, um, so, you know, we're having, we're having good years with stuff like that. And, you know, there's still parts of the portfolio we're waiting to, 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 you know, perform and, uh, we still have conviction in the thesis. It's just, you know, some of these things take take a while. But I think, um, you know, for our investors, they they believe in the process. They believe in, in, in what we're doing. And so they're, you know, they're willing to, to let these things play out. Oh, very well. And good for you on gold. Um, I think that's fantastic. And uh, some some good performance there. What what has been lagging uh, besides the obvious? What has been lagging over there or, or maybe <laughs> stuff that hasn't worked out? Well, you know, I, I think um, value stocks in general have have struggled. Um, you know, it's, it seems this market is, is heavily momentum driven. It's driven by a handful of names, um, you know, and people just don't really care about the stuff that hasn't been working, even if it looks attractive on a fundamental level. And so, you know, we own, I mean, obviously some, some commodity stuff that we'll probably talk about later in the program. We own some uh, some media names that haven't done too well. 
um, you know, we, we've, we had some energy. We've, we've uh, been scaling out of it. I mean, I, I was pretty concerned about it going back a year ago or so. And so it's, it's tough because, you know, it's these things seem cheap. They, they're so beaten up. And yet, uh, you know, for, for a lot of these areas that are beaten down, you really need to see a, a way out of them. And so we've had some pretty active discussions about our energy exposure. Look, obviously that that's done terribly right now. It's, uh, we have almost no energy exposure and, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, um, sh- should we have some because it's contrarian or, or, or is it fine that we're so low, you know, comparatively, uh, compared to what we you know had in the past. So, you know, look, there's parts of the market that haven't participated in this rally. It's, it, they're, they're few and far between. I mean, it seems like you throw a dart anywhere, you know, the market's up 25% this year, you're going to, you're going to do pretty well until we've had a good year. Um, but you know, I mean, you need to own some of these really high flying momentum stocks to, to, to keep in line with that. And so, Look, we're we're comfortable doing doing well, even if it's relative underperformance, because we think that the areas that we're in that haven't performed yet are, you know, just that yet. I mean, we we, we still believe strongly in, in the thesis. We think they're going to do just well. And you know, like like the example I just mentioned, I mean, we've had some of these stocks where, uh, you know, you're down you're down thirty percent before you're up, you know, you're up huge. So I think. Um, for us, we don't really get too beaten up about stocks that if we don't catch the ultimate bottom, because, you know, a lot of these areas we're looking at are, you know, ones that have been beaten up or down or for, for various reasons, because we think that's where you find a lot of these, these, these big asymmetric returns. And yet it's very difficult to, to time, hey, I'm going to catch the exact bottom or I'm going to catch it on the upswing. So sometimes you're, you know, a quarter or two early and you got to take a little bit of pain, but that's fine. I mean, I, you know, for us, we're, we're, we're happy to do it. You know, as as long as you are, you know, right at the end. I mean, it's it's fine to it's fine to have that, you know, short term short term pain for the long term gain. Right. Absolutely. No, I I can think of many many names where it started out bad and declined significantly before things returned and got much better, and uh, it was the right move. Tell me a little bit. What's your guys' thoughts uh, over at Old West? Uh, how is the broad market holding up, and how long do you see that this party can keep going? <laughs> well, you know, personally, I probably thought it sh- should have turned in 2011. So I'm, a, I'm, I'm probably <laughs> eight years behind on that. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, you know, I don't know. I, it can, it seems like it can keep going um, f- for a long time. I mean, it's not really the things that are driving it. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, don't fight the Fed. Look what they've done in the last two months. I mean, they threw $300 billion into this thing. It's up, I don't know, 8% in, you know, seven or eight weeks. Uh, it's amazing that, you know, the U-turn they've had, they want this thing to go higher and, and they, it seems like they have, you know, bullets in the gun to do that. You know, there was a lot of discussion maybe a year or two ago that they were running out of things to do, you know, interest rates were at rock bottom levels. And then they said, okay, well, maybe we'll start raising them. But it's, it's been amazing how, you know, when there's just the slightest hint of trouble, uh, these things, they all, they all start running and saying, you know, how do, how do we save this thing? So, in that in in that respect, it's difficult to fade this. You know, I mean, our our short book is probably as as small as it's ever been, which you know maybe is a bad sign. We always you know talk about this in our investment meetings. Is man, um, you know, of course it's a, it's a, it's like a contrarian sign. Like you know, right when our shorts get as small as possible is when the thing will break. But you know, my thought has been it's very difficult to short in this market because there's so much pressure squeezing this thing to the upside. And so, you know, you might be right eventually that, hey, this market deserves to, you know, let some air out, but uh, how much pain do you want to take riding that up? And so, 
you know, we've shifted a little bit towards, you know, more kind of long-term put, you know, option exposure where you can have, um, you know, less capital at risk and, you know, you're, you, it's, it's pretty fixed versus what you can make in, in terms of the downside. But, you know, it's really tough because a lot of these, you know, unless there's something really broken with the company, it seems like, shorting something based on valuation in a market like this is more of a market call than a company call. And so, you know, it's, you know, do we really want to short this thing because it's 30 or 40 times earnings and we think it should come down? Well, you know, if, if that's what the market wants to pay, I mean, that, that, that's what they're going to pay. And, and who says they don't pay more? You know, I, we see a lot of arguments out there for why the market should go much higher, right? I mean, if you compare it to, to interest rates, I mean, you know, what's the 10 year, you know, 180 or something, well, if you flip that, that's like a 50, 55%, you know, um, yield or earnings yield, right? So a 55% PE ratio, hell, the S&P has got a long way to go, right? So, um, you know, it's difficult to make just kind of valuation calls on this thing because you're really kind of planting the flag in the sand and saying, hey, the whole market's going to turn and, and, and just in general, investors are going to want to pay less for these stocks. And it seems like that's not the case. I mean, they're they're, they're willing to just continue to mark up these these names, especially I mean, even given that, uh, you know, the fundamentals haven't really improved. I mean, maybe on a maybe on a per share basis, you're seeing, you know, earnings per share growth. But a lot of it is just driven by buybacks or by, you know, you know, especially companies taking advantage of low interest rates. And, and, and it's almost like uh, capital structure changes that are that are really driving this. So, you know, on the short side, it's tough. We, we, we're still extremely cautious. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's watching it kind of with this detached amusement, like, oh my God, how, how high can this thing go? Um, especially with so much kind of underlying that, that doesn't seem to be going very well. Um, and yet it, it just, you know, we're, we, we, our view is, you know, why don't we just wait until this thing, you know, markedly turns, there's no reason to, to call the top. I mean, I, I think in, unless there's like a 1929 type crash where, it all unwinds in a single day or over a you know a couple period a period of a couple of days. Well, you know most of these 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 bear markets that come over time are are multi month multi quarter periods. So there's no reason that you need to you know be at the top. You can wait till it starts and, and and then start to get short. But for now, I mean, it just seems like it's up up and away. Right. It's difficult to short even if it's a fraud or if it's a, a bankruptcy scenario. I mean, it's very <laughs> difficult. <laughs> Evaluation, yeah, you're just wasting your time there. So yeah, well, and even look, even even, all, yeah. even the frauds. I mean, even the frauds are tough to short. Well, the, oh, yeah. the, the 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 supposed frauds. I'm sure you you have a few in mind, but it's amazing the strength that you see there. I think people, it's just a you know a suspension of disbelief, and and you know while the parties are going, you you got to dance, and I think that's what a lot of what a lot of investors are doing. Right, and one of the one of the interesting things about. Uh, the long-term put options is yes, they are a wasting product, but you can be wrong for a couple cycles in those put options. And then of course they will pay off substantially, even if you've been wrong for a number of years. Um, yeah. And you, you may, a, I mean, and so you don't really need a lot, maybe a couple percent a year is insurance, right? You know, people buy insurance and in a, in a lot of other aspects of their life. I think it's similar to do it here. Um, it seems to be in a market environment like this preferable to just, you know, taking shorts that uh, seem to go up into defying all the odds. So, you know, that, that's why I say our, our short book is, is, is pretty small at the moment. Um, you know, and then we have some of our longs have a have a sort of pseudo short characteristic. I mean, it's, all, you know, where they they will do well in a more volatile market environment. I mean, you mentioned the gold and that's a perfect example where, 
it seems to be anytime you know the market gets spooked there's this there's this flight to gold and so you know it's gone up a couple hundred bucks this year which is which is pretty amazing given that it's also gone up with you know a strong market and a strong dollar i just i think that shows the underlying uncertainty that's out there and that people do have some need for protection whatever whatever way that may materialize and or maybe it's just a commentary on you know the fact that a lot of this has to do with um central bank intervention and the fact that if they keep throwing money at, at this problem you know eventually that money be, becomes worth a little bit less and, and something like gold should do well right no i i say uh it, it seems that it's only a matter of time before the treasury puts printing presses in every household <laughs> <laughs> maybe so depending on well there's an election coming up you know these guys are fighting over each other to see who can give away the most money so maybe maybe that's maybe that's coming it truly is a clown show there's no doubt about it well well how about uh I was speaking on other items, I, you know, certainly back to the put options, we know we're probably in round two of long-term put options. So we've, we've uh, had to experience some, some uh, pain, but again, it's, it's fairly insignificant uh, for some insurance to the portfolio. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And before I talk, I want to ask you a bit about gold and how you guys have succeeded there, but uh, can you speak to maybe another sector? I, I understand you guys probably have some interest in biotech and you probably, have you been looking at the shipping offshore oil services industries? We have. I'll, I'll, um, yeah, we have. We've actually looked at both. I'll, I'll, I'll start with the biotech. Yeah, actually, our, our largest position is a is a biotech stock. Uh, it's a company called Raphael, and you know we're not really biotech investors. I think it takes a lot of specialized knowledge to really do well there. But this this one came about more just following our process of of following people that have interesting track records. Um, and, you know, we, so it actually came about because of our investments in media. So we have a number of uh, media investments. Kind of the thought is, uh, you know, all these big companies are throwing tons of money at content and, um, you know, where are they going to get that content from? Their budgets are through the roof. They don't care if they make money. You know, the Netflix, Amazon, Facebook are all throwing money at content. So we've, we've had some, um, you know, we've been looking at media for a while and, and who has the content to do that. And so one of the companies that we owned, uh was was owned, uh the the major shareholder was was a guy out of new york who we've we've followed as a really good track record and they actually my partners were were in new york had a dinner with them trying to ask him about this media company and all he could talk about was was a biotech um that he owned and so it's a company called Raphael. they have a, a pancreatic cancer drug and you know pancreatic cancer is just the, the the survival rate there is is abysmal it's it's one of the worst ones and so you know, this this was an interesting thing because the guy he's a you know billionaire. He got involved with it a few years ago, put some money in. He's the largest shareholder now, and you know it, it originally was part of his. He has this telecom company that he kind of uses as an incubator, and so you know he mentioned it when we were trying to ask him about his his media companies that had been spun off, and he was so excited about it. That's all he could talk about. And so we started doing work, and I mean, it was pretty fascinating the results that they've had in in pancreatic cancer. I think in their in their phase one trials, I mean, they were they were small trials, but they had several complete remissions. I mean, it was kind of unheard of. So you know, we you know did a little bit more work on it, and we said, hey, this is this is kind of an interesting one. And and really, you know, it was goes back to our process, which is the focus on people. And this guy, and you know, my my partner covers most of these names, um, so he knows all the details. But this guy, I mean, he started out as a hot dog vendor. And essentially, you know, made his way. And now he's a you know multi-billionaire. Uh, probably his his big claim to fame was he bought um, some Spectrum assets out of the uh, you know the wreck of the, the tech bubble um, back in 2000 2001. He paid 50 million bucks and 
you know, 15 years later, 18 years later, that's what what was straight path, which was which was sold for three billion. So he did pretty well there. And you know, his his business, uh, this telecom, you know, holding company, it's kind of a you know, it's very there's a focus on capital allocation. So his original business was was international calling cards. I don't know if you remember those things, but you know, people used to <laughs> get these cards and they dial the number on them, and it was like it was a callback service. And so, you know, that, that wasn't very long for the world, but he took the cash that he harvested from that business and he would allocate it to these other, these other growth initiatives. And so since then, I mean, he's had a you know, great track record with performance. He's spun off a number of these things. And so that's how we got involved in one of these media companies. But so, you know, when he was talking to us, telling us about this, this, this cancer drug, um, you know, we, we ended up actually buying the, the telecom to get the spin out. Um, because of the results that they had and the way they structured it was where they put a bunch of cash on the books. They gave it a building, which was their headquarters building. So they had some, you know, rental income coming in. But so when this thing was spun off a few years ago, uh, you know, it was, I think it was spun off at like six bucks or something and dropped down to four. Cause you know, this is one of these areas that a lot of value special situation investors look at are these, are these spinoffs because a lot of times, you know, it was spun out of a telecom company. So the guys that own telecom and they get it in their book, they're like, I don't want this thing. It's a, what's this biotech, right? And at the same time, because they didn't have their, you know, the drug was not, is still kind of in trials. Their only real revenue was coming from the rental income from the headquarters. And so actually Bloomberg still lists it as a real estate company. And so you have this kind of orphan company where no one's really paying attention to it. So it dropped all the way down to four bucks, you know, which was, I think, a $70 million market cap. And, and, you know, it had 40 million in cash and it had, you know, this, 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 you know, huge headquarter building that was probably valued at 50 or hundred million. So we thought it was a slam dunk just based on that. Uh, you know, I mean, that was $4 stocks at, at 20 today, but really I, I think the interesting thing there is, um, you know, they have this drug that, uh, I mean, it, the results were so good in phase one, the FDA essentially let them skip phase two. So they're in phase three right now. Um, we're watching it and, you know, really the interesting thing is, and like I said, we're not doctors over here, but we're just kind of following the, the, the smart people is, you know, the, the, the approach they have is pretty novel. It's, um, you know, there's chemotherapy there, which is, you know, they just blast everything with the drugs. There's immunotherapy where they try to get your immune system to, to, to attack it, to, to attack the cancer. These guys, it's called altered metabolism, which is, they essentially notice that the, the cancer cells and regular cells have a different way of fueling themselves, of, of metabolizing energy. And so their drug targets just the cancer cell metabolism, I think, in the mitochondria. And so, I mean, the, the results have been pretty impressive. And so, you know, it's, it's something like that where, look, I mean, um, we don't own a lot of biotech, but it's something like this where, we're, where we've, you know, kind of aligned ourselves with a guy with a great track record who owns, I mean, he still owns, I think, half the company. Um, and we're, we're very excited about it. I mean, they've already been doing out licensing agreements and it sounds like, uh, this altered metabolism platform they have will be the future of the company. It seems like they're kind of positioning themselves, you know, if they have continued success in the phase three to essentially take this individual compound, you know, high of that off. And, and then, you know, the, the remainder will be, um, you know, more of a platform type company where they continue to develop drugs with this methodology. So, you know, like I said, that's, it's, it's, it's different, it's unique, um, but we find these areas that are kind of overlooked, you know, and like I said, I mean, it was spun out of a telecom company. So, who, you know, who's looking at that type of stuff for us, right. that's very intriguing. Right. So, you know, there are things like that. So where, where did that come from as far as uh, when did you guys come across that and where is the stock today? So we bought into the, to the parent pre spin out. 
Um, so we've owned this company. So like I said, we were in media um, looking at the content one. So the company we own is called IDW and they were, you know, one of the largest um, producers of comic books, you know, so, <laughs> you know, you talk about some of these strange areas that we look at, but so this was a huge comic book company and they were essentially taking their, their, they had a big library of IP that they were turning into TV shows and, and movies. They were kind of doing this transition of, to become more entertainment focused. And so that was, that was a few years ago. We, you know, we've been watching this for several years. That's how we came upon this, this guy, this investor who, you know, was instrumental in all of these things. Um, so let's see. So Raphael came public. It looks, it was spun out, I think in early 2018. So we were probably talking about it in late 17. Um, when they said, Hey, this is, this is the most promising thing. You know, we have the company's called IDT. It's the, it's the shell company, the telecom that, that, that spun all these things out. So, you know, we, we actually were, were like, okay, this, this is an interesting one. We own a number of the, of the spin outs of that company. And so we said, okay, let's, let's take a look at this. And, um, you know, I think we, so we bought probably IDT, uh, maybe a few months prior just so that we would have access to the spin. And then, you know, when it came out, uh, it was a, you know, incredibly cheap valuation given the cash that they had on the books and the building. Um, so that was, I think six bucks. It went down to four, you know, we, we, we were buying more, um, you know, and it's kind of, I mean, it's $19 today. It's, it's, you know, as high as almost 30 earlier this year, it's kind of moved in fits and starts. It has this, these runs and it pulls back. Usually they coincide with conferences. I mean, there was a conference earlier this year. I forget which one it was, but they, you know, they went from, that was one of a big run they had from kind of eight to kind of eight to 18. And then they pulled back and then they did another one where they ran to 30, you know, this summer. So, you know, it's interesting because in our view, uh, one, I mean, the, the, the results have been staggering for the success of this drug, especially in, in a in a disease that, you know, it's it's a death sentence. I mean, the, the survival rates are, are, are terrible because a lot of people don't notice it until it's it's too late. And so the fact that they've had complete remissions, I mean, yeah, it was a, it was a small sample size. So we're waiting to see how they do, you know, in a, in a, in a larger population. But I think really the thing that has, you know, I mean, it's only a $300 million company. I think the thing that has really... Um, you know, kind of held it back is that just the lack of awareness, right? I mean, it was spun out of a telecom. It's listed as a real estate. No one really talks about it. But then every time they go to a conference, people are like, oh, you know, where these guys come from? And, and, and the stock has these huge runs. And so, you know, I think that's attractive to us. We, we, we you know, we're very close to the, to the, um, to the investor, the, the largest investor, uh, my partner probably spends a couple times a year with them. You know, um, he, very, very, very smart guy. Um, and, and, and thinks this is, thinks this is it. So, you know, we're, uh, you know, f as, as much as, as we, you know, understand this, the space, I think it's, it's exciting to have all of these things aligned, you know, I mean, there, you don't necessarily have to be a specialist in everything, but you, it's important to know who the smart people are so that you can follow them. And I think if you look at who's involved with this company, I mean, it's a, a number of Nobel prize winners. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty impressive for, a company of this size and this results. And I think it's only a matter of time before that awareness um, gets out to a wider audience. Well, I'd recommend the audience do some digging around and, and find out uh, more about the company, look them up and, and find out the backers and the people involved. I think it's uh, pretty interesting. Some of the stuff you mentioned there. And shipping. Well, so look, we've owned a shipping company for, for a while. And this was one of the ones, you know, when we launched this new fund, 
you know, the idea was not necessarily a uranium fund per se. It was more of a thematic special situation opportunity type fund. You know, shipping was one of the areas that we looked at, along with, you know, natural gas. I mean, some of these, some of these things that are really beaten down, fertilizer, agriculture. We looked at all these things. And, and the question is, okay, all these are beaten up. You know, how low can they go? How low should they go? Should they be, sh- is there a reason they're down here? Is there any reason to believe that they turn around? What is the catalyst? What is the timing? What is the upside? And so we kind of went through this matrix for all of these areas and shipping was a big one. And, and, and you know, we, I had a whole sheet of all the shippers and we did all this work on it and it seemed like, okay, it's probably going to be a, you know, a few years for a turnaround, you know, looking at scrap rates and the order book and all that stuff. I mean, I think really what happened with this, with these the sanctions on Costco was, was a really big catalyst. Um, you, you look at what happened to the rates. They just, I mean, they skyrocketed. I think they went up, you know, 10x in a month or two. So, you know, we we still own um, the shipping one we've owned for a long time. I mean, we haven't gotten the same sort of leverage to the improving rates because we own this one for the downturn. I mean, it was essentially they were very conservatively managed, where they had a uh, they had a you know 75% of their of their fleet was on long-term contracts, and so they didn't have as much spot exposure. Um, but you know, as their contracts roll, they'll be able to re-sign at higher prices. So we still own that. But the other one we're really looking at is that, uh, is that Scorpio, which I'm sure, you know, a number of your listeners have, have probably taken a look at a number of value, uh, funds have, have, have been, you know, kind of active talking about it. This one, you know, going back to our process of, of, you know, looking at insiders, looking at, you know, how much do they own, looking at insider transactions. This one, I mean, just jumped off the page because the CEO a couple of months ago, you know, a lot of times we'll look at, you know, are they are they buying stock? Is it a big purchase? Is it a big sell? Um, and then that that's a starting point for us to look at these companies. But this guy, I mean, he but he was buying millions of dollars of call options, like and short term call options, you know, with only a couple of months of expiration. And so we're like, this is this is, you know, I, I've never seen anything like this. I mean, you know, some of our best ideas have been stocks where you know, the stock's down for some reason and you'll see the CEO come and he'll buy like you know, 30 million or 50 million worth of stock. I mean, we've had, we've had really good positions. I mean, in fact, the end phase one was one where we, where we, we saw a really big um, insider transaction. That's what kind of got us interested. But, you know, so we looked at the Scorpio and we said, man, I mean, you know, uh, this guy's come in. I, I've never seen a CEO load up on short-term calls. I mean, I, I, maybe you have, I don't know. That, that, that's something strange uh, in, in my, in my opinion. So, you know, I, I think for us, when we re- reverse engineer or something like that, you see the big move in the in the spot rates. You know, and I, I think the stock did the stock did move. I think it, it ran from you know 17 or something up to up to 30, so it almost doubled. But I think given the given the move in rates, I mean, it's, it, it, even if they pull back, and actually one of the one of the value managers that we that we follow did a pretty good write up on it a few months ago. Just looking at what this company can earn, even you know, given a conservative assumption in rates, and, and they're essentially, you know, earning you know, uh, you know a big chunk of their of, of their market cap every you know uh, you know every few months. I, I think it was very staggering to see, and so no surprise that you have the CEO who's out there saying, "Hey, yeah, our stock has doubled, but you know what? With rates here, it should go a lot, lot higher." And you know, not only not only am I going to buy stock, I am going to load up on I mean, short term calls, and so. You know, we own a little bit of this one, which, you know, we've been watching it for a while. And that, that kind of goes to how, how we do some of these things is we'll have these names that are on our radar for a while. Um, you know, we'll do some preliminary work and then we'll kind of put them away. And then, you know, every so often we'll come back to them when, when, when something comes out in the news. 
and that was the case on this one, which is like, you know, it was on our list of the shipping companies that we looked at. Um, and then we see, you know, when you see a CEO come in and, and, and do something like that. And I think the stock was around maybe 28 at the time. And I'd have to look today where it's at. It's probably, I mean, he looks like he's done quite well at that 36. So, you know, whatever that is, he's done, um, you know, he's, he's done pretty good <laughs> up 30%. I'm sure his calls are up, uh, you know, multiple of that. I'd have to pull up the sheet to see how well he's done, but you know, I think there's there's things like that where, you know, you, you've been looking at this name and you have it kind of stewing in the back of your mind and then you see something like that where you're like, OK, uh, some, something else is going on here. And, and it causes you to really kind of either, um, you know, dig in a little more or, or actually take the plunge. Anything in that sector, uh, you know, whether it's the tankers, the the bulk shippers or offshore oil services, any of those uh, that haven't really performed yet that you guys are involved with that you like? Well, you know, I think, um, like I said, I, I think when you have a move like that in the rates, you know, it's the conservative guys that do the work. I mean, so we've owned this company, Sakos, uh, which is they're they're in the oil tankers. They're they're making a, a push into LNG. It hasn't really done much. I mean, it's it's been kind of flatlined for for you know two or three years. Um, it started to move off the bottom with with the rates, but uh, people looked at it. It hasn't had the same leverage as some of these guys that are more spot spot exposed. Um, but I think there's still a, a good argument to be made for it because, you know, even though they are, you know, they had their long-term contracts that got them through uh, this downturn, those those will eventually roll off uh, and they'll be able to re-sign at higher rates. And I think so. Even though they haven't had the same leverage, um, they're still they're they're still perking up a, a bit. And I mean, obviously not as much as as some of the other ones. So, you know, we watched that. We watched the offshore oil. Um, just oil and gas in general. I mean, energy has been so beaten up. It's very difficult to to find the the light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, I, it's funny we say this on the day that Aramco lists, and of course, is trading limit up. But you know, maybe that has more to do with the fact that it's floated less than two percent of, of the outstanding. But you know, I think there's a lot of these areas where you know, and you, you start to see the private equity guys moving. I think natural gas is a perfect example. I mean, it's just been beaten beaten to death it's just down so so much continues to go down everyone tries to call a bottom it continues to go down um you know it, it's hard to say i mean we need natural gas it, it powers a lot of our electricity you know warms our houses but there's just so much of it i mean they're they're a victim of their own success these monster wells that they're, they're drilling up in appalachia so i don't know do do are the companies worth more than the debt i mean that's that's really the question there because it's possible that you know that they they will be around, but maybe not as as public entities. And and you know maybe the private equity guys that are that are kicking around there now are are just going to be be picking up these things, and they have the ability to sit on them for a few years until demand goes up or or, or whatever it takes. But it's tough. I mean, like I said, our our energy exposure is about as low as it's been. You know, we I, I we have some uh, some long term calls on some of the offshore guys, thinking you know eventually utilization is going to have to pick up. I mean, especially if if the shale, uh, if the shale, you know, crashes if, if, even more than it has crashed. I mean, you know, there, I, we, you know, hear guys talking about a, a wave of bankruptcies still to come because, you know, a lot of the shale performance has just been a function of, of, of cheap money, right? The decline rates are so steep. You got to keep putting money back into the, into the ground. And it's this treadmill that you're on and hopefully you can make it out. You know, your production grows enough that your base decline rate on your whole company gets low enough where eventually you start turning free cash flow. Um, but you know you, you're dependent on cheap funding to, to get to that point, and so uh, look, we've had it for 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 this long, and, and these companies have survived. But you know, if they go away, one of the questions we've been trying to ask is who 
you know, if you do want oil exposure, if you think, okay, you know, oil's not going away anytime soon, maybe in the future, you know, it, it goes away, but, um, you know, down the road, but if you do want it, where, where do you get it? That's not, that's not shale. I mean, it seems like a lot of the U S operators are almost entirely onshore are shale. So, you know, we've been looking at maybe some of the oil sands up in Canada or some of the offshore guys, you know, the big diversified companies, it, it, it's tough because who's going to be the last one standing and, and what's the catalyst? What's going to cause people to come to natural gas and say, oh yeah, you know, it, it shouldn't be two or three bucks. It should be, it should be five. I mean, and maybe it's this, a huge shift uh, in demand if we're all of a sudden starting to ship a bunch of LNG or, you know, maybe, I don't know, exporting it by pipe, north or south, who knows? But uh, at this point, it's hard to see where that comes. I guess maybe it is more appropriate for someone who's got, um, you know, who can just sit on it in private. They don't have to put out a monthly performance report and just say, hey, I, I don't care. I'll tuck it under the bed for, you know, five years and see where it is when it, when it comes out. So, you know, we look at these areas, but we don't always... Um, you know, we don't always participate because we think that maybe the time horizon is, is too long and, and maybe there's a chance you can, you know, just as well buy it a year from now in the future uh, at the same price or lower. And so, you know, that's why I said like for this, for this fund, the one that I manage, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not a uranium fund per se, but it just happens to be a lot of that because that's the area that we think has the best upside, the best timing, the best catalyst and all of that. But, you know, we keep an eye on all these things. I mean, I think, you know, just today, I saw an article on the uh, on, on rare earths and we have some rare earth exposure and, you know, some of these names in the U.S. Um, are getting a pretty big pop. And it's because, yeah, the, the government, you know, these are critical minerals and the government's trying to, to trying to boost the supply chain. And so, you know, I, I think we kind of have that nimbleness where we can, you know, go to where we think the best areas are over the next few years. Um, you know, so, so we're watching everything. But, you know, when we when we when we do find the place that has the best combination of upside of catalysts, you know, downside protection, that's where we'll really dig in and do a lot of the work. And that's where you'll see the, the bulk of our position. Yeah, interesting comments you have. You would want to think that the offshore space is going to be the best economic situation going forward for oil. That may not be the case, but I, I want to, in light of the, the onshore issues and the Canadian issues uh, with the pipelines and transport and just the fact that most of these projects are just economically upside down, uh, or too costly compared to offshore, you would suspect that at some point offshore would really be the place to come back to because of just the sheer volumes and and really the quality that you can get out of really good assets um, offshore. And I just saw note. I just noticed that uh, Chevron. There was an article that came out. Uh, I believe it was today. Actually, uh, Chevron. Yeah, huge write down. Huge write down and expects prepare for long term low prices. And that, that yep. could just be that could be self serving or it could just be a contrary statement there to where we could probably expect higher natural gas prices. <laughs> oh, well, maybe it's a signal. And, and I guess I should say in, in, rather than offshore, we were trying to look for conventional, right? It seems like, uh, you know, where they just stick the straw on the ground rather than, you know, fracking and, and doing and going into the shale. I True. think it's tough, you know, if you're looking in the US. You know, I, I don't know. Find find a U.S. guy that that's not doing that's not doing shale. You either have to go to the majors or you know, or or, or you have to go offshore. And so I think that's why the the oil sands look interesting. And you know, I actually did a lot of work on the oil sands in my last role. We were, um, you know, when I when I was just covering energy. And so, you know, at that point they were doing all this capex build out. And the, and the and the point was, you know, years down the road we'll have this wall of free cash flow. And it seems like they're they're getting to that point, uh, and yet, you know, the, the oil price isn't really cooperating with them, but they're they're still doing all right. 
And I think the, the difference is they don't have that steep decline and that treadmill of, of reinvestment need where, you know, if, if you get cut off from the capital markets, you're screwed. So, um, you know, but that said, like, you still need to have a view that oil is going to be higher in the future, I think, for these things. Maybe it is. I, I don't know. I, I, I see arguments on both sides of the table. I, I think that, you know, for me, it's, it's kind of a coin flip. I, I see good arguments for why it should be higher. I see good arguments for why it should be lower. You know, any of the, we don't have to make a bet, right? So I, I don't have to take that. I'd rather go to an area where I see really compelling upside somewhere, or if I'm for the short, really compelling downside, and, and do it that way. You know, so we don't. That's why we're, you know, concentrated in, in a number of these areas um, because we think that that's where the best opportunities are, uh, and, and we're fine. Look, if, if those things actually do, you know, if it if the roulette wheel does land red and those things do go up, okay, well then, um, you know, we missed it. But I, I think I'd rather find something where the risk reward is, is skewed in my favor. Uh, so I don't, have to, I, don't have to, I don't have to worry too much about it. Right. Absolutely. And and certainly one of the things you, you brought it up there is, is just the price where, where the oil price is today, for example. Offshore projects can be potentially fantastic even at current oil prices. So you may not need those necessarily to rise. So you can look to places that have utilization issues and uh, you know, rig count issues, uh, scrap issues, and so forth, um, where you have, even in the offshore services sector, you don't necessarily need a higher price for oil, but just because of the washout that's occurred really since BP Macondo, you know, you can start to look at, yeah, maybe this actually is going to work out pretty nicely, even if oil doesn't go anywhere. Um, let's move on, Brian. Let's talk precious metals, base metals for just a moment. Uh, you guys had some involvement with gold earlier this year. What do you see for opportunities there and how did you play the gold run this year? Yeah, we still, I mean, we still like gold. It's still a big part of our portfolio. You know, we caught a lot of flack the last few few years for, for that. Um, you know, people saying, well, why do you want gold? It's done nothing. It's been flat. Uh, our view has been that this move that we saw this year is just the start of something bigger. It's it's a shift. You know, it's still widely underowned. I think in in a lot of portfolios, um, and yet uh, we think everything points to to higher gold prices in the future, just because there is so much uncertainty. You know, no one knows what's going to happen with this era of central bank manipulation, but it seems like they're all tripping over themselves to print as much money as possible. That has to that has to eventually turn out turn out good for gold, and I, I think that's what we're seeing with this with the start that we've had so far. You know, we we've done similar to the rest of our portfolio. It's we follow smart people, we follow um, you know insiders that have big stakes, we follow you know big purchases, and so I think you know one of the ones that's done really well for us was this Kirkland Lake where we got involved fairly early because we saw that, uh, you know, it was, it was a very high insider ownership. You know, I think Eric Sprott had you know, hundreds of millions of dollars invested in this thing. Uh, it's pro probably worth billions now. I think that he was, he was trimming some of it though, but you know, this is one of those things where we were just looking for, you know, who, who's got skin in the game, who, who are the guys that are basically putting their, their money where their mouth is. Uh, and, and this was, you know, a huge position for them. So we got in and, you know, it's, it's gone up three or four times. Um, and so at that point we say, okay, you know, um, and, and look, uh, fairly so. I mean, they it was extremely high cost, extremely high grade, very low cost, or they just, every time they put out a news release, it was like they had some other, you know, crazy, uh, high mine grades. And so it's, it was, um, you know, it's easy to justify the run that they've had, but now they're, I mean, they're massive. It's like a five or $10 billion company. And, you know, the position got so big for us that we said, okay, let's scale back and look at, um, 
some other options. And, you know, one of the ways we go about it was, let's see who was talking about this company back when it was very low, right? I mean, that's one of the ways we kind of identify smart investors is you, you reverse engineer it. You see something that's done well, who, you know, who called it? Who, who was there ahead of, the, ahead of the move and saying, hey, this is good. This is what's going to happen. I mean, that's why, you know, we point to that end phase. You know, we tell people, go back and read our, our you know, 3Q 2017 letter when it was a buck 50 and we, we laid the whole thing out. And, you know, after it runs, we say, look, there it is. That, 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 that's it. And so, you know, for gold, it was like, okay, who was writing about this company when it was, you know, you know, three, four, five, six bucks. And, you know, now it's, I don't know, 40 or 50. And, you know, what, what else, what else are they talking about? You know, is that same insight uh, repeatable? And so, you know, we found some people that were pretty smart on it. And, you know, so we moved some of that into a company called Atlantic Gold, which was up in Canada. And, you know, a lot of this kind of goes to just our general thought process for gold, which is it's very important to understand the jurisdiction that your mines are in. Um, you know, I, I think you can find some really high grade mines uh, at low valuations in, in other parts of the country. But if you see what, you know, happened in, I guess it was Burkina Faso or, or Mali, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, strife in the other parts of the world and you can have an, a very nice money making machine there and, and then it gets upended because of something that happens, you know, just, just on the ground there. So, we really preferred these things that were in Canada or Australia, you know, safe jurisdiction. So Kirkland Lake looked good. We did some work on this Atlantic and we thought it looked good. It was, you know, these were the, the, the positioning that we tried to have was, you know, originally we still own Barrett Gold. We like the big one. We really like Mark Bristow. We think he's a, he's a great guy. He's, he's, he's really smart doing what he's doing, but we Agreed. thought, you know, the, the sweet spot are these companies that are kind of, you know, the, the developers, the intermediaries where they do have production, they have a way to increase their their cash flow. They're almost gold price agnostic, right? Where a lot of companies, you need the gold price to go up for them to do well. This is one where, you know, as if gold price is flat, they're going to do fantastic. And so that was Kirkland with their continued resource expansion, really high grades. That was this Atlantic where they had a path to increase production, even in a flat price environment. Sure enough, I mean, we didn't even own that one for that long and it got taken out at, at, a, at a nice premium. And so, and then we went from there and then, um, the next one we got into was this one called West Dome, which is, um, you know, a couple of mines up in Canada. Uh, and it's, it's the same thing, you know, it's just, they have good results. I mean, they're, it, it, it's, it's a very, um, you know, I, I think you're seeing, uh, there's fewer and fewer of these stories where, you know, the jurisdiction is good. The grade is good. The size is good. Um, and, and, and people are, are, are marking them up and this one's, you know, this one's already had a nice run. I mean, it's, it's been a huge, it's been a huge winner. Uh, so we're already starting to think, okay, what's what's going to be the next one? And so that's actually where we are now is thinking, okay, you know, our view is this company probably gets bought pretty soon. I mean, there's been a lot of M&A in the space. You've seen, you know, it seems like day after day, there's, you know, another another deal is announced. There's, there was a lot of, um, a number of gold deals announced a, a week or two ago. So, you know, for us, it's, um, you know, how do we, how do we replicate the success that we've had in the past? You know, what was the formula that caused us to either identify these companies or, you know, that caused these companies to do well? And do we see anything uh, in other companies that have those same those same ingredients where, you know, it hasn't the move hasn't already started yet? Right. Because um, that that's really how you, you, you find the good companies. And then if, if we can duplicate what we've done in terms of is there is there good insider ownership? Is there any insider buying? I mean, that, those are all the things we kind of add up. And when it ticks enough of the boxes, we say, okay, this thing, this, this might make a good investment. 
Yeah, certainly. And, and Mark Bristow is a solid guy, uh, probably the best big company leader in the space, uh, hands down, very smart guy. And the Crocodile New Market team, which kind of made Kirkland uh, what it is today to some degree, those guys are off doing something else uh, now as well. And uh, yeah, some interesting stuff going on in the space. The M&As, the recent sentiment Egypt takeover that's trying to commence here as far as a bidding war for that company. There's a lot of interesting stuff that's certainly taken place in the space, and I, I'm in full alignment with your view that uh, this is just the start for this sector to get going. Is there anything in the gold side that hasn't worked yet, Brian, that you guys are holding on the portfolio? Is there some that haven't taken off? Oh, I, I mean, we don't really own that many names. You know, I think we have pretty big positions in the ones that we own, um, and and so no, I I think you know we we mentioned all all the real ones that that we own. So I, I think, um, you know, we do own some, I guess, smaller positions and some of the big undeveloped deposits, you know, like we have some Nova gold, we have some tower Hill, you know, those are probably longer term plays. They, they take a lot of CapEx. They're just, they're, they're big deposits. And I think their, their time will eventually come. And they're, they're really the, you know, those have the most leverage to a rising gold price. And so, you know, where we think the sweet spot or either, you know, in something like a barrack where it's big, you know, Bristow's making a lot of moves doing, you know, M&A and divesting stuff. And then we have these sort of more operational oriented plays. We do have some exposure to some of the big deposits that, you know, are maybe CapEx heavier, you know, they, they, they're they going to need some work to be done. But at the same time, you know, there's not a lot of big deposits that are out there. And so we think that if, they're almost like a call option on, on much higher prices because, you know, if gold does go up, you know, call it, you know, 2000, you know, a couple hundred dollars more than here or even higher, you know, some of these big deposits that maybe didn't look good at 12 or 1300 are going to look very attractive because they have, they have the, the size, they have the scale. Right. And so, you know, we do have some of those. They've been, you know, I mean, they've started to work actually now. I mean, Nova Gold's had a little bit of a run, but, you know, there's there's some debate on it. You know, is the capex too high? You know, they're gonna have trouble processing. But I think, um, you know, the price solves everything there. And you know, to have the size of that, I think 40 million ounces or something. I mean, it's a it's a it's a massive project. It's in a nice jurisdiction. So something's gonna be done. We're actually waiting. It's funny because we're waiting to see what Bristow does with it. Um, you know, we're kind of split on whether or not he it, it makes his IRR hurdle. But he's 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 definitely making moves. I mean, it seems like he announces something once a week. So. We'll, we'll probably see what what gets done there, but yeah, I think those are probably later stage type of names because they're so far from from construction even. I mean, they're not, they're not in production, so that is almost a, a a right tail hedge for for gold. And we look, we we we're kind of would lean on the more bullish side. We think that um, you know there's a lot of upside to come. I mean, we're not we're not going to base our base case on that, but we think it's a real possibility that we get significantly higher prices. I mean, especially if some of this, you know, all this central bank shenanigans kind of blows up in their face. And, you know, with something like Novigold, we really like, um, you know, Tom Kaplan, who's involved there. He's got a great track record. He owns a ton of the stock. Uh, and then we have a smaller position in, in Tower Hill. And we look at the shareholder list there and it's, you know, it's it's Paulson owns a third of it, then Tocqueville, and then you got uh, Tom Kaplan again. So, you know, I think you've got uh, whatever that is, 60, 65% of the uh, of the companies owned by 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 four shareholders who who've done pretty well here. So, um, you know, but that said, I, I think the operational ones have done better. Uh, this is more of a this is more of almost a you know a right tail hedge, and I I think uh, 
you're starting to see them work, which tells me that, you know, there's probably going to be continued movement in the gold price and then these things should really do well. Any thoughts on uh, silver at all and also platinum palladium and then also anything on the base metal front, uh, things like copper perhaps? Yeah, so silver, you know, I think we're kind of under the impression that it, it should do better, right? I mean, it should have more of the leverage. Um, the, the irony, I mean, the joke is that, you know, the gold silver ratio everyone talks about, I forget what it's at now, 80 or 90 or something. And, you know, everyone says, oh, that's a signal that, you know, it's about to revert and it just keeps, <laughs> it keeps getting wider and wider. So, you know, I don't know. I think eventually it happens. It's interesting that, you know, a lot of the so-called pure play silver guys do have a lot of their, a lot, a lot of their, um, revenue coming from gold. Um, you know, and so I, I think we're not really, uh, you know, we used to own uh, some silver that, that did pretty well. We got out of it because the valuation got pretty high. Um, but I, I think we're we're satisfied just owning um, kind of the the gold guys that have silver as a byproduct. We're not necessarily um, we we don't necessarily need to go just for the silver because we think you know they're they're all going to move up. Look, eventually maybe that that gold silver ratio does come back down, and then you do want some pure silver exposure. But I think we're we're fine with it as a, as a byproduct at this, at this moment, platinum and palladium, um, you know, obviously palladium's had, had a crazy run. You know, we don't, we don't own anything that's directly tied to that. Um, but we watch it, you know, just like we watch any of these other things, I think for base metals, you know, copper, um, yeah, copper's a tough one, right? We, we, we own Freeport and we, you know, we talk about how, you know, it seems like for a while they weren't just they weren't getting any love, and there's this disconnect between the long-term picture and then what happens in the short term. I mean, the long-term picture looks great, right? They're not finding the stuff. They're not. They're not. You know, the the, the demand picture is great, especially with all these, you know, move to electric vehicles and all that. Um, so the demand looks great. Uh, the supply is not going to be there to match it. And yet, in the short term, people are worried about, oh, you know, what happens with China? What happens with this and that? You know, so there's like a very bearish short-term picture where the long-term picture is, is fantastic. And so, you know, we, we, we've owned Freeport for a while. I mean, we've, we've just kind of basically ridden it. Uh, it's interesting. There's discussion of whether or not Bristow comes in and buys them. I mean, there was, I think he, he was, they asked him about it in one of his calls a month or two ago. Um, you know, we don't know. I, I, I think that copper is going to be a great long-term hold what it does in the short term. I'm not sure. And that, that's kind of the downside of this, of this, you know, public equities is that you have to report monthly, and so you may have these great long-term ideas and yet the short-term picture is bad. And then you catch a lot of flack because people are like, Oh, why isn't your stock doing well? I mean, uranium is a perfect example where, you know, the long-term picture is great. Short-term has been abysmal. Uh, and, and so people think you're wrong, but then I, I, you know, I point to some of the other names that we've had, you know, um, that have, have done really well that we started out long. I mean, one of our best names this year is a company called Fulgent Genetics, a genetic testing company. You know, we, we owned it for a few years. It was another one of these situations where the guy owned a ton of the company, had a great track record. He started a company, sold it for a billion. This is his next thing. You know, we, we sat and wrote it kind of $4 to three. It was there for a few years and now the stock's at, you know, 11 or 12. And so I think these types of things happen where you find these companies that have great long-term prospects the short term might have a little bit of hair on it or, you know, there's some issues there and then the stock doesn't do well in the, you know, the, 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 a few months or a few quarters that you own it. And the temptation is to, for, to think that, oh, you, you're wrong about it. But really, it's just, you know, you know, th there are times when, when you can be early on something. And, and as long as nothing's changed in the fundamental picture, uh, then, you know, it's either a buying opportunity or you should just continue, you know, to, to have the commitment to the name because nothing's changed. And so, 
you know, for something like copper, we're just, we basically, we don't really talk about it that much because we think, Hey, the long-term picture is great. It's going to do what it does in the short term. Um, but, um, you know, I guess from, from the metals perspective, most of our focus is, is on gold. Yeah. And Freeport, we've had that for a long time, uh, have done pretty well on it. And, uh, I think it's just a, a matter of time before it continues to move and it'll be interesting to see what happens. I, I do like what's going on with copper, uh, and we have some exposure obviously to all of these, uh, but copper is, is looking quite, uh, quite fantastic in our view here. Well, and it well, finally let's... started to perk up. I mean, it's been, it's been down in the dumps for, for quite some time now. I saw that it, it hit like a kind of a multi-month high recently, if I'm looking at it correctly. So maybe it's the start of something. Yes. And before we move on to uranium here, um, what's your view, Brian, on the use of physical gold ownership as a wealth protection strategy at this point? Do you mean like physical, physical or like GLD, the, the, the stuff no. in the vault? I mean, yeah, the, the real the real physical hold in your hand, uh, you know, wealth protection strategy with gold. Oh, I think it's great. I mean, as long as you have a place to, to put it, uh, you don't tell anybody about it. <laughs> right. So I, I think I, the problem that people have with physical is is storage. Right. And so, I mean, unless you're, you know, sitting in the rocking chair with a shotgun, you know, with, with, the, with the, the, the bars behind you, I think most people are going to be storing it at some sort of facility. And then there's there's always that concern about uh, the facility itself. Right. And so. You know, I, I see a, a, a variety of different viewpoints on it. I, I, I can sympathize with why you'd want to own physical. I think from a from a public fund perspective, we, it's, it's difficult for us to do it. I think maybe from a personal level, it's great as long as you figure out a, a good way to to store it. That's probably the biggest issue. And then, you know, I, I guess the real question is, I mean, this kind of goes more into the kind of conspiracy side is, you know, if you do own it and, you know, stuff does hit the fan and all of a sudden gold's worth 5000 the real question is how do you sell it? How do you use it? Um, I think there was an issue kind of in the last time gold ran up about counterfeits out there. And so, I don't know, are you going to buy like one of those little, you know, ultrasonic testers to see if it's real? Are you going to, how are you going to test to know? I, there's a lot of issues with the use of it. I, I think in theory, it, it's great. Um, but for us, we like the we like the miners. We like the operating leverage, right? Because you know, if when if you own the physical, and it's the same thing with the uranium physical funds, it's the same thing with with like owning a GLD. Is if if the commodity price goes up, you're going to get one for one whatever that return is. Whereas you know, if you have a gold company it has a thousand dollar cost, and in the in the you know the the price goes from you know twelve hundred to thirteen hundred, well you know, the, the, the commodity went up one over 12 and, you know, the miner went up one over two. So, because you're, 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 you're looking at that change on the margin. So I think we like having the operating leverage of the miners, which is why, you know, we don't own GLD in the uranium side. We don't own any of the physical funds. I, I think, you know, I'd, I'd rather own if I wanted safety, you know, something like a Cameco or a Kazatom Prom. Now, certainly on the gold front, uh, you got to have the, some of the operating leverage of the of the stocks, the producers, and so forth, and obviously the the discovery upside in the cycle, uh, and then certainly you need to have some kind of a blend of physical. Um, that's a key part, key component to have for wealth protection strategy. Well, so, where, where, where do you where do you keep your uh, physical? Well, I, interesting that you ask. Uh, we've we've been a proponent uh, <laughs> in different uh, content, but uh, silver bullion out of Singapore is absolutely our favorite by a by a long shot. So they store it in Singapore? Yep, store it in Singapore. Uh, they provide you all the documentation, photos, et cetera. Um, they have a, 
all of the verification tools if you choose to do verification they have all that uh, it's stored by weight not by value they've really provided a number of solutions they have uh, inspection reports uh, they give you specific parcel photos etc so it's really a fantastic way to to step it out put it in another jurisdiction that is arguably now at this point given hong kong Probably the best jurisdiction uh, in the world, probably at this point, potentially. Right. You sound like you sound like Jim Rogers. I think he he, he sold everything and moved there. So maybe you're in yeah, a good company. It's, it's a fantastic place uh, as far as that goes. So yeah, we do like that. Uh, good costs, good solutions, uh, good technology, good payment systems, um, and just easy to move in and out. They also have some other platforms as far as being able to lend, uh, secured lending, and so forth through their through their systems and their accounts there. Um, so it's they provided a lot of good solutions, Brian. There is some counterparty risk, but storage. Yeah, you that's, know, what, that's what I want. Um, is it really yours is the question. I mean, yeah, from everything that we've investigated and seen, it really is yours. You can take physical delivery by order if you'd like. Um, the parcel sizes are fairly small for people. You know, if you have if you have $10,000, you can do at least $10,000 per order. Typically, you can find a good product from the major mints that they'll store for you. Um, if it's something smaller than that, they typically won't store small size in general, but 10,000, I think still pretty uh, palatable for most people. And so it's a great setup, uh, great service, great verification. I'm still an advocate of having your own physical in your possession. I was going to say, I, <laughs> I thought you were a shovel in the backyard kind of guy, but maybe, maybe you know, you have a little well, verification. You need to have a blend. Um, certainly, uh, you need to have both. Um, there is always counterparty risk, but uh, this particular group in Singapore, I think, is, is probably minimized counterparty risk pretty substantially. I think there's more counterparty risk in the U.S., but uh, yeah, I think it's a good piece to have, but I absolutely agree. We're a big fan as far as having some of the major gold stocks and, and some of the operating leverage in the natural resource sector to precious metals, um, and that's pretty abundant in our portfolio. Well, let's talk uranium. Um, sure. What's your view at this point for uranium, uh, and how has the strategy evolved for you since you got into this sector? Yeah, so it's been a lot of waiting for it to happen, I, I think. There's been some frustration with a lot of the general investors that, you know, everyone sees this thing on the horizon coming and, and yet uh, the equities haven't yet performed. I mean, you're, you're maybe starting to see a little bit of perking up. You've seen some of the spot prices and spot pricing move up, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, how our outlook has changed. I think given all the delays that happened, I mean, if you remember when we talked, it was 232 was supposed to come out. I mean, at least the notification was in April of this year and then the ruling was in July. And so, you know, that the July thing got, they started the working group, it got kicked down to October and then there was the month delay to November. And then, you know, up until last week, there was nothing. There was a little leak that came out of Bloomberg. But I think our view has been that, you know, time is, is not on your side if you're a really small junior or if you have, you know, significant cash burn and you don't have the balance sheet to support it. Because you're going to have to raise, you're going to have to dilute, and so our view is that, you know, the the more of these delays were coming out, we we thought we need to move kind of up spectrum, you know, further from the explorers and more into uh, the guys that were more conservative, the developers and the guys that had the strong balance sheet. And so our portfolio has become a little more concentrated. Uh, you know, it's probably some fewer names, number of names in the portfolio, but I'd say the top ten are over are over 50%. We're not as top heavy as as the um, 
you know, some of the ETFs that are out there where it's, you know, 20% Cameco, 20% Kazatom problem type thing. We don't own any of the physical. I think just, you know, similar to what we were just talking about, I think uh, if if we believe that this thesis is going to work, we want the leverage of the miners. And, and, and if we didn't think the thesis was going to work, we didn't we wouldn't want to own spot anyways. Right. So I think. Right there's there's that middle ground there and look i'm not knocking anybody that owns it i think it's great you know if it works you're going to do well I, you know i think you at least get a double on it right most people are talking 40 50 bucks is needed for this thing to balance it probably overshoots that because of how long it stayed down here so i think people will do just fine in, in physical but it's not we don't have it in our in our allocation in fact i mean we own we own some of the bigger names in our bigger funds just because that's where the liquidity is but the fund i manage um, you know, it's, it's more of the kind of tier below that, some of the developers, I think that has been, um, one of the big shifts that we've seen. Uh, the other thing that kind of shift that's taken place over the last six months was, you know, we've moved a little more into the U S names, especially after, after the 232 when they all just got slammed. I think that was turned out in hindsight, uh, obviously was, a, was a great time to be buying. We were doing so I, I think, you know, our, our, our view was, uh, was look yes he he denied the 232 the quotas but you know why would they do that this whole working group uh charade if they weren't going to do anything right i mean why not just end it right there you know and it's interesting to see kind of, i mean there's just something that came out today i mentioned with the rare earths but you know before 232 even got started about a month before they filed that petition uh, trump had an executive order uh, for, uh looking at critical minerals right where they wanted the um they wanted to come up with a draft list, uh, a list of, you know, whatever minerals were critical based on imports or, you know, national security or whatnot. And so, you know, that was really one of the things we were looking at before this whole 232 started. And so where everyone was looking at 232 and the Trade Expansion Act, you know, we've always had an eye on this Defense Production Act because that is kind of one of the mechanisms with which they can uh enact support for the industry. And so we've always been watching that and you and you're you're seeing it take place in rare earths. In fact, about uh a week or two after the 232 decision in July, uh Trump came out with an executive order declaring rare earths. This was part of the Defense Production Act, Section 303 to declaring them um important for national national defense. And I think that was what's laid the groundwork for the news you saw today on the rare earths where the US Army says they're going to fund a you know, a rare earth processing plant, you see a number of these, these stocks are flying. You know, I, I, I mentioned on Twitter today, you know, we, we talked about this Texas mineral co um, resource company uh, a few months back in a rare earth panel. They, they also have, uh, you know, a big, a big uranium resource. So, you know, we own a small position. It's always nice when you come in and one of your stocks is up 50%. But, you know, I think more importantly, it just shows that this is the kind of thing that the government can do. Uh, when they want to support something. And so a lot of people are, you know, despondent and sad and they say, oh, hey, I, you know, n nothing's come out. All we've gotten is this leak, but it's like, hey, give it some time, right? I mean, uh, that that uh, executive order for rare earths was in July and, you know, here we are, whatever that is, four or five months later and, and they're actually acting on it. And so I think the big lesson is, and, you know, probably not a lesson, it's something you should already know, is that the government takes a lot longer than most people expect to act on these things. And so that's been tough is that, you know, look, these are almost have an option like characteristic. A lot of these junior equities, because they don't have revenue and they just have expenses, there is this steady decay. I mean, it's their it's their cash burn, right? And so, you know, there's like a 
it's almost like an option theta where they're just going to decline and decline until one day, you know, if the price is right, then they can actually go into business and, and start making some revenues. And so the longer the delay gets dragged on, the worse it is for these guys. And so we were, you know, kind of more huddled or, you know, got a more defensive posture looking around, you know, who is, who has the ability to, to, you know, who can last, who, who, who can survive in this lower for longer environment. And I think, you know, so that was a big change. And then also this shift to the U.S. where we thought, hey, the selling is overdone kind of back in July, August. And we were we were buying these things because we thought, look, this nuclear fuel working group is actually a huge positive. Uh, we, we think something good is going to come out of it. It's very heartening to see what they did with the rare earths here today. I think you're going to see something similar where they support the industry. Look, our view was that Trump came out and he didn't want like he wanted to help the miners. I think he he understood what commerce was trying to say but if they had done it with quotas uh it would have essentially come at the expense of the of the utilities right because the utilities would have been the one footing the bill they would have had to pay higher prices and look the utilities have a big lobby they've spent a lot of money they you know they have a lot of jobs too they're in some swing states i don't think he wanted to disadvantage a whole sector of the economy just to you know help out a few miners in the west right so it seems like at least our view is that he wanted to help but he didn't want to do it at someone's expense. And by doing it this way, where it essentially any help would come from the government, it doesn't disadvantage any particular party. And so that's why I think there is going to be a, a, a good out, a good outlet from this. And so, you know, our, our largest position is actually energy fuels. I mean, I'm sure we might, you know, get some Snickers from some of the other uranium guys, but we think that the, <laughs> the infrastructure we have that, that, that there is, we're, we strongly believe there's going to be some help for the industry. And so that's maybe that's a, you know, maybe that'll tr turn out to be wrong. But and like I say, most of our positions are are, are very similarly weighted. Um, you know, so when I say it's our largest one, maybe it's, a, you know, a point or two above above the rest. But we do have a number of, um, you know, we have increased our U.S. exposure over the last six months because we think that, you know, they, there will be some benefit to this, especially now that, look, the government, if it can come out of their pocket, right, they don't, they don't care what's another hundred, few hundred million of these guys. They just, they spend money like drunken sailors. So I think, you know, it seems like there's going to be some support that, that happens here. We're looking at, you know, we, so we do own a lot of the U.S. guys, you know, I, I mentioned energy fuels. I think energy fuels, it's not just about the resource. I think having that mill um, is, is a very critical piece of the U.S. infrastructure. And so I think, they will be a beneficiary, probably the primary beneficiary, um, you know, if any support is given, because any other company that 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 is around them will probably be processing through their mill. Who knows? And maybe they'll maybe they'll give some you know loan guarantees or something to help start up some of the other mills. But we think that one probably does well. You know, we look at some of the other guys there. You know, Your Energy, Western. I mean, some of the guys around there, I think, are um, are are very interesting companies. Uh, and, you know, we, we look at, an, at enrichment, too. I mean, there's, you know, so much focus on, you know, which one of these these resource companies is going to do well. Uh, you know, it seems like, in, you know, kind of reading between the lines, watching some of these hearings, you see that uh, there is a big focus on enrichment. And we don't really have domestic enrichment. I mean, we have Urenco, but it's owned by it's owned by foreign companies in New Mexico. So the question is, and this is, I guess, also goes to you know, just uh, domestic resource in general is what qualifies as domestic, right? Uh, Cameco was the largest producer in the U.S. Are they domestic? You know, is it is it because, you know, the production is here or but where is the ownership, right? And so, you know, I think that's an interesting question, especially like someone like Peninsula, you know, they didn't participate in that rally. Um, and you wonder, okay, is it considered domestic production or is it because it's trades in Australia? So, 
you know, there's questions like that. Um, and so for something like enrichment where you have Urenco, who's basically the only one doing it in the U S and you know, the rest of its own, or, you know, a, a lot of it's run by the, by the Russians, you look at a company like Centris and you wonder, you know, is this thing ever going to come back into play? Because I mean, they've been out down and out for so long, you know, they went bankrupt, but look, if you read the history, I mean, they were the U S enrichment company. I mean, this was the, this, this was enrichment in the U S so, you know, we've looked at that company wondering what's going to be the outcome so, you know, I think maybe, maybe um, you know, we focus on the U.S. a little bit more than uh, some of the other guys out there. But we believe that, you know, they wouldn't have set up this, this working group if they weren't going to do something. And then, you know, just reading between the lines, looking at administrations, people speak, you know, watching the, you know, the, the new Department of Energy head, you know, his, his confirmation hearing, listening to some of the questions that were asked. It seems like there is a big push to reinvigorate the U.S. industry. And so... We think, I mean, it's not, you know, it's, it's still a, a fraction of our portfolio and we still like some of the other stuff around there, but that's probably one of the biggest shifts that's happened, you know, uh, this year for us. Trump made a wise move because he can't be directly blamed for ruling against the utilities in the 232 outcome. But now, ultimately, we all know deep down that utilities are all going to pay higher prices going forward anyway. So it's a bit of a wash. But I wanted to ask you also, uh, position size that you guys have there? And then can you give us, uh, if you can share the information, can you give us a count of how many you have uh, in the portfolio? Yeah. So, um, well, so we have a few different funds, right? So the one I manage is the, is kind of the uranium specific one, which has an, a lot more positions. Um, so we have probably about 20 or so positions in that fund. Uh, like I said, I mean, the top, the top 10 or, you know, 50 or 60 percent so it's kind of a you know there's a little bit of a tail there we cut off a lot you know a number of the names that were really further out if you remember going into the end of last year so we launched uh, about the middle of last year and we had a really nice tailwind going into going into the end of the year i mean spot was creeping up it's got to like 29 so we thought hey you know maybe it makes sense to have a you know small positions and some of these further out the risk spectrum names i think as time dragged on we saw spot come back down. We saw this stuff get delayed. You know, we, we decided to concentrate more. So now we're probably only more around like, you know, 20, 25 names, which is still a lot. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's probably in line with some of the ETFs. But like I said, I mean, we're, we're still much more concentrated around, around the top, you know, 10, 15 names are, are almost all of it. Um, you know, for our other funds, we maybe have, you know, four or five names. I think of the weighting there is maybe 20, 20 ish percent, 25%. So we, we, we do have pretty big exposure across, um, our more diversified funds, but those are, those are a lot of the larger names as you might expect. I mean, it's difficult to buy, you know, an extremely small company, um, you know, in a, in a fund that's, you know, 40 or 30 or 40 million. Right. And so we have probably five or six fun, different funds that, that make up the, the total assets that we have. So, um, yeah. And then in terms of top position sizing, I mean, in mine, I think it's uh, probably 10% or so, 10 or 11%. In some of the other ones, it's maybe, you know, seven, 8%, I think are our biggest ones. And so, um, you know, it's nothing extraordinary, um, but we do have pretty concentrated bets on, on the ones that we feel the, str the strongest about. And look, I, I think you see some of the moves that these names can have. I mean, look at last week, what the U.S. names did. Uh, you know, your position sizes can grow pretty quick. And I guess that goes more towards kind of the overall thinking of just investing this way is, you know, it's, it's the tough thing. You got a stomach is that a lot of these things, it's like the steady, slow bleed. And then when it works, it works in a hurry, right? So you kind of lose money slow and, and make money fast. I mean, so 
not a lot of people like that. Uh, most people would prefer to have just steady, steady gains, you know, and then, but every once in a while you get wiped out. I mean, that's kind of what 2008 was, right? Is everyone's happy to earn their five, 10% a year, 15% a year. And then, you know, watch out for the big, watch out for the big wave. You know, this is completely different. I mean, we're, we're early on a lot of stuff. We'll, we'll, you know, sit there and it may go down, you know, a couple percent a month, but then when it works, it works in a hurry. And so I think that's why, you know, we have these positions. So, you know, you have a 10% position, it goes up, you know, 10, 15% a couple of days. It's, it, it, that's a pretty big move. And all of a sudden your position decides to start to rise. So, you know, we have to be a little more careful about monitoring how big some of these things get. You know, like I talked about the end phase, right? I mean, that thing, had we held it, uh, you know, it went up 30 times. I mean, it would have been probably a, you know, 50 or 60% position in the fund. I mean, it would have been the value of the whole fund that, that is now. So, you know, I think you got to be kind of careful about balancing what your, what your view to the upside is with, with not having things get too far out of whack because then, then, then your, your whole performance will swing, uh, you know, on, on one or two names. And so, for us, I mean, look, it's still, these are, these are all very small stocks for the large part. And so the portfolio swings pretty widely um, uh, in any given direction on a day. And so, you know, I guess that's kind of desensitized, uh, desensitizes you to that, that, that normal volatility, which is why I say, I mean, you know, the, the partners that are in this fund understand that it's a long-term view. You know, a lot of these, the monthly performance is, is essentially noise. Uh, because when you see that, you know, you can make back a month or two of performance in a day, uh, I, I think they understand that, look, it's probably better to just, you know, wait and see, wait, wait the time horizon now and then look at it rather than, you know, I mean, you can go crazy looking at the daily fluctuations with this thing. I mean, like I said, I came in today that one stock's up 50, one's up 25, one, you know, some are down 20. I mean, so you look around and it, it's pretty volatile. I mean, it gets, it gets you know, uh, it gets uh, muted out because you you might have, it's maybe a 1% position or a 2% position, but you know, these, these things can swing. And so, um, yeah, I mean, we, we do have concentrated positions and the ones that we feel strongly about, but at the same time, we're, we're pretty mindful, um, you know, about our position sizes. And how do you see uranium stocks going forward uh, once contracting comes in and prices move? Do you see a substantial gap up or do you see a slow, sustained trend higher? Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's a, that's a good question. I, you know, it's, it's hard to say. I, I think it was interesting to, to look at the move last week uh, when they had that leak and you had, you know, a number of the U.S. names were up 10 or 15 percent. I, I, and then, you know, then they kind of pulled back a little bit. So I think maybe it'll, it'll be a combination of that where when we when we do get big news or big catalysts, you'll see some big moves, especially in some of the smaller names. Right. I mean, I, you look at a company like Western Uranium. I mean, that thing went from, I don't know, 70 cents to a dollar in like a few days. Right. So that's a, that's a pretty big move. Um, I think there will be those types of punctuated gaps, but I, I don't think that'll be the whole move. I think, you know, it's kind of two steps forward, one step back, you know, and then, but I think the, the gradual overall trend will be higher. I mean, there's a few names um, uh, that have done well, like the year today, you know, Global Atomic is, is one of them. You've, you've, you've talked about them in the past. You know, it's, it's, it's done quite well. It's been a pretty steady march higher. And, and one of the reasons is, is because they, you know, they do have that other asset that produces cash flows. And there's, you know, some debate now whether or not they're going to need to raise to essentially bridge a gap to their next dividend. But I think that is the overall trend is up. And I think for some of these other names, if you go out a year or so or two, especially if the prices continue the movement that they're on and the fund, there's no change to the fundamental picture, you should see, you should see upward movement in these things. And, you know, hopefully we're, we're getting that thing started. You know, I, I think a lot of people have been in this trade for a long time wondering when it's going to get started. It, it's interesting. You know, it seems like there's this, almost unanimous um, 
agreement that this, this supply deficit exists, that it's going to have to be remedied, we're going to need higher prices. Uh, and yet, because it's in the future, the stocks just continue to trade down in, until we get there. It's almost like you need the thing to just beat you over the head. I mean, in fact, Cameco talked about that in their, their last conference call was, hey, look at what's happened in conversion. Look at what happened in enrichment. The prices have gone up. And yet, you know, they've gone up so much. And yet you go back and look, the, 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 the actions that, caught, that set those movements in place happened years earlier. So, you know, why is it why does the market waiting for like the crunch time to hit them before they start pricing this in? And so, you know, one of the biggest questions we get is about timing. You know, when is this thing going to happen? And our view was, well, look, it's not necessarily when the timing of the of the supply crunches. It's when is the timing of when it gets priced into the market? Because if everyone sort of agrees that it's going to happen, well, you, you should expect that the equities will start to price that in ahead of time. It's not just going to be this flat and then maybe a hockey stick straight up. Maybe it is. I mean, that's kind of what what the past has shown us. But, you know, I, I think that that's very unusual for markets to operate that way where, you know, people kind of generally see something coming and then they wait until the day it gets here to, to, to mark all these things up. So we would think it would be more kind of a gradual rise. It's nice to see spots starting to pick up. It would be great to see some contracts. You know, the, the price reporters aren't doing any favors by kind of lowballing the prices they report, even though you got guys talking about contracts that are already being done at much higher prices. So, Look, we think it all gets it all shakes out the right way. I mean, the long term view hasn't changed. If anything, it's gotten stronger. I mean, it seems like every day there's something positive on the on the demand side or some other supply that's coming off. And so, you know, the coil keeps getting tightened. Our view is the long the longer this thing goes on, the more dramatic the price move to the upside is going to be. And these things are essentially trading like options, right? I mean, you know, for a lot of these projects, you look at the value of them at, at, a, at kind of a normal price level, 40 or 50 bucks you know, they're hundreds of millions of dollars. And yet the, you know, the stocks are trading maybe sub hundred million. So something's got to give there, unless you think that the price is not going to get there. Well, then these things are going to be zeros. But if we think that the supply deficit is going to force that price up to at least that incentive price, well, all these things have massive upside. And so for us, we can wait. I mean, look, yeah, it's a, it's a little painful, you know, for, for your investors saying, Hey, you know, we're a little bit early on this thing and these things are kind of languishing for a while, but you know, do you believe in the thesis we're laying out there? If you do, you're going to do extremely well. Just hang tight. And I think that's what we're doing here. And, you know, it's very hard to wait and people are frustrated and they're bored or whatever it is. But, um, you know, if nothing's changed in the thesis, then you should be just as excited as ever. Certainly some sound points you bring up. How about specific companies? Is there anything you want to mention? Is there a specific company other than the obvious disconnect out there? Is there any company that uh, that has a, a really odd disconnect or an odd situation that you see in the sector? And what do you see happening potentially in 2020? I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's an odd disconnect with all of them, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, you right. know, these things I think should be all should all be essentially baking in the fact that this market is not going away. Uh, nuclear is not going away. And so it's going to have to balance. And these things are going to be operating in a normal environment, whether it's, you know, one, two, three years down the road, but they're all going to be valued based on that normal environment. And that's much higher. And so, you know, I think there's a disconnect with all of them. I mean, you know, there's some funky names that we have some small positions in. And we talked about Virginia last time. I and mean, that's, that's a really interesting one, right? You know, since we talked, they lost the Supreme Court case and the thing got slammed and then it got compounded because Sprott wanted to get out and they were like a 10 or 15 percent shareholder. And so the things I don't know, it's like trading for a million bucks or two million dollar market cap. And, 
you know, it's still got 100 million pounds in the ground. Uh, and there's a, a, a reasonably well-defined way for them to get it out. I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm probably a lone voice here and people probably think I'm an idiot for talking about it. But it, I just think it's it's a really intriguing one. It's not like it's a big position for us, but it's something that's really, you know, like you say, there's a strange disconnect there. A lot of people think it's dead. It's never going to come out. And yet, if you like read through the Supreme Court opinion or the, or the, or the transcript, you know, the judges themselves are like, look, there's a very well-defined way for them to get this out. If the government wants it, they can just take it. You know, they can just uh, condemn the land. And, and you know, I, I actually talk to to Walter Coles, you know, every now and then, every few months, just to kind of get an update on, on what's going on. Um, and he's like, yeah, I mean, they, they, they're essentially working on that. They have another court case that they're that they're doing in February where, you know, they had originally suspended it uh because you know i think the supreme there's a better odds of getting heard at the supreme court if you don't have other cases pending so they suspended it they reopened it it's in this county in virginia that's pretty favorable to mining so you know that that's an outlet but i i still think the best uh, option for them is is eminent domain because look i mean if, if the resource is good in fact i talked with you know energy fuels is a big shareholder in them and so anyone who owns energy fuels basically has indirect exposure and i talked to mark chalmers about it and the position was 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 bought before, was you know predated him. It was the it was the last guy who essentially who took the stake when he was kind of building up all their assets. And he's like, right. look, uh, you know, I I was in the industry back when they were doing this project. It's it's a great project, right? I mean, it's near surface. It's a it's large at scale. It's a small footprint. So I mean, if the government wanted to essentially boost their supply, this would be an interesting way to do it. Uh, I think one of the things they're discussing is potentially like a sale lease back where the government would seize the land and not even the whole land. I mean, they would just take basically the small part of the land uh, over the top of it and then, and then kind of lease it back like any other federal land, you know, for oil or gas, lease it back to the company to develop it. That's an interesting one in our opinion. I mean, maybe it goes nowhere, but I mean, the fact that you can buy, you know, uh, you know high grade, not necessarily, but, you know, relatively high grade for the U.S., uranium at, you know, basically a penny a pound that, uh, you know, if they wanted it, they had a pretty simple way to go about it. I think that's that's an interesting one. But, you know, there's not a lot of, like I said, I think every, all these things are, are disconnected, right? I mean, I think centrist is interesting. I don't know what's going to happen. They have some hair on it, right? They have some pension liabilities, but uh, we'll see what happens with enrichment. I think there's a lot of, a lot of focus on, on, on mining, but, um, you know, enrichment's a, a really key bottleneck there. Um, you know, do, do they get set up with some of the plants? What is, look, it's all going to depend on what comes out of this, this, uh, you know, all we got so far was this little leak that talks about stuff and you saw some of the, these names start to run up on it. But I don't know. I, I think the vanadium guys are interesting. I think Western looks looks interesting. What's funny is, you know, we talk to a lot of people in the industry, you know, the miners, the utilities, the intermediaries, traders, lobbyists. I mean, we, we, you know, we talk to everybody. You know, what's funny is, you know, some of the traders who you think are the most would be the most bearish because they're kind of trying to sell you sell you stuff. Even they agree that, you know, this bull market uranium should happen. But we, we met with one about a month ago and they're like, you know, our, our, you know, we, we actually like vanadium better. I mean, and so, you know, they, they look at this this Western mine. And I remember about a year ago, there was like some chatter about how, you know, they didn't have their offtake agreement. They would have to go through White Mesa. And there's like some 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 bitter relations there because essentially, you know, they, they bought it. They bought the Sunday mine at a fire sale from Energy Fuels. Energy Fuels will want to let them come back. And, and, you know, all this kind of jockeying back and forth. But, you know, I, I think having that optionality is interesting. A lot of these companies, they just trade for such distressed valuations that, you know, look, maybe if this thing goes on and we're talking a year from now and it hasn't moved and these, these things are duds. But um, I think there's just a lot of stuff out there where the valuations are just so low 
people are going to look back if this works, if we're right about the thesis, people are going to look back and be like, that was just crazy. They were giving these things away. And anyone who just had the stomach and the capital to kind of sit there and, you know, hold their nose and, and, and buy these things is going to do extremely well. So I don't know, kind of a long, long winded way to say, yeah, everything looks good, but you know, there's a few things that are kind of, uh, uh, kind of really wacky. Any thoughts on other jurisdictions? So uh, thoughts on Africa, and then also, can you share any thoughts you might have with uh, other jurisdictions that maybe not proven up, like maybe uh, South America? And then also, uh, Brian, if you wouldn't mind, uh, did you see, I know you've recently gone to some of the industry conferences. Uh, was there anything unique that came out of those conferences that you want to point out? Uh, sure. So I'll, I'll start with the jurisdiction. So w we like Africa. I mean, we own Global. We own Bannerman. Um, we own GoVX. I mean, those are, those are pretty big positions. You know, some of them like, you know, they're, they're, they're high cost, like Bannerman is extremely high cost. Right. Um, you know, I, I think Australia, we own some Vimy, uh, you know, we're, we think that there's going to, there's going to be these, these products are going to be needed. I mean, I, I, we probably our largest non us is, uh, is global right now, just cause we do like the, um, we do like the zinc asset they have, but you know, I, I think uh, in Canada, it's, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's next gen and Denison are the, are the two big projects fit efficient as well. The efficient just been getting destroyed. I mean, what a, what a, um, what a rough, what a rough go that, that, that company's have. I mean, you know, it's crazy when you see the CEO come on, on like Twitter and he's like, Hey guy, <laughs> I don't know what's going on. You know, I, I'm, I'm buying stock. I, you know, I, I think someone was, there was someone was selling it or something, but anyways, look, those are kind of the big three projects that have yet to be developed. Um, you know, we don't own a lot of exploration, I guess we probably own, you know, that was one of the things that really we kind of shifted away from when we found, when we, you know, when it turned out there's going to be these delays, you know, we still like the exploration companies. We do have some exposure. We like the ones that uh, have found something. So like, I think probably the two we own uh, are ISO and PurePoint are the two that we, you know, have some exposure to because, you know, look, they've found something. They're in the right neighborhoods. I mean, with, with PurePoint, you're right across the border from, from next gen's arrow, they've already had some 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 pretty good discoveries. They have great partners in there with Cameco and Arano. That's an interesting one to us. I think with ISO Energy, obviously they're right near all the infrastructure on the east side. They have the huge you know anchor shareholder in next gen who just you know participated in the latest financing. So you know we don't own a lot of exploration because I think uh, at this point you know especially if there's continued delays, it's going to take a while for. I mean those those things are are way down the road, but um, you know, they're, they're very, uh, they're very exciting places to be if this market ever does pick up. And how about, how about conferences? Uh, any, anything that came out of the conferences you recently attended? Yeah. So I was at WNA in London in September, which was great. I mean, I, that was my first time going there. Um, you know, I think what was, what I really liked about it was, you know, the concentration of people in such a small place. I mean, it was, it was almost every mining CEO was there, you know, my, my, my calendar, I, you know, and they're all in this little bar kind of in the lobby. Right. And so you're sitting there and it's like every miner you can think of, and they're all sitting talking to someone else around you. So got a lot of great meetings there. You know, you can talk to a lot of the utilities. It had more of a global focus. I think for the guys that were interested in the U S going to the Nashville conference, the NEI was, 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 was um, probably had more of a U.S. focus, but, but it was great. You know, you got to catch up with a lot of guys that we're shareholders with, talk to a lot of the funds. I talked to, you know, Sachem Cove, uh, Segra was there, L2 was there, you know, and so we're all kind of doing the same thing, you know, kicking the tires, talking to these guys, doing these meetings. It was nice to be able to kind of catch up um, with all these people. 
Uh, and yeah, I think the big takeaway from that was from that conference was that, you know, you look at all of the demand cases, base a case, low case, high case, and they all had increasing demand. And so really, you know, you had for the first time in eight years, uh, a positive outlook, um, for this, for this industry gathering, uh, which was, which was, which was new. And I, and I think that you're starting to see this growing recognition, you know, I mean, a, a lot of guys like us who've been watching this thing are, are like, yeah, this thing has to happen, but you know, it's not going to happen until the utility fuel buyers and all these guys come on board. And I think that's what you're starting to see. Same thing with the Nashville conference. We weren't at that, but I, you know, I, I, I talked to some people that were there and, you know, heard some of the takeaways and obviously, you know, Sachem Cove gave their presentation and seemed to get a pretty good reaction to it. So I think that, you know, there is this growing awareness that something needs to change. Prices need to rise. I think the utilities are becoming more receptive to it. If the spot price continues to rise, that should give them some, uh, you know, some justification for signing higher price contracts, which would be great for the market to see. And, you know, like I said, we still have very strong conviction in this thesis. Uh, it's just, it's just a matter of time. You know, we're just, we're just waiting for it. Um, and I, I think, you know, look, yeah, there's only a few weeks left in, in 2019. So maybe we can turn the page there, but you know, look, every day that goes by is a, is a day closer. And I know that's kind of a cliche and, and people, you know, that are watching that, that are kind of bears on the uranium thing. I mean, these guys have been a broken record for years and years now, but I think there's enough signs showing that we're getting much closer to the turn. I, I think looking at the other prices in other parts of the fuel chain is a very strong signal. I think it's just a, you know, a very, you know, we're, we're very close to seeing those strong price movements pull, you know, pull through to the, to the U308 side. Um, and then, you know, then it's just the equities following. And I think they're, they're so depressed right now. I mean, the spring is so tightly coiled that it doesn't take a lot. And I think that's what you saw last week with that leak from the, from the, the working group was that these, these things are waiting for news. And I mean, any set, sort of news, it just gets them, you know, the, the, the moves are, are, are pretty dramatic. And so, you know, we're very happy with the portfolio we have. And like I say, I mean, the one I have is, is almost entirely uranium. And so, you know, it's, we're very focused there, but even in our other portfolios where, you know, we have a pretty significant weighting, you know, thankfully we have some of these other areas that are doing very well for us that can kind of offset, you know, what, what's happening in uranium while we wait. But then, you know, I, I would expect the baton to be passed and, you know, you, next year or so we'll, we'll see, you know, these names leading the way. Yeah, we don't have any problem waiting here either. Um, perfectly patient to sit back and relax and and selectively chip away. Um, that's certainly uh, been our view for quite some time now, and uh, we have no issue continuing. Now, Brian, can you speak to, uh, for folks interested in Old West, is the group still open to new investors? What are the primary terms and how can they reach out to you? Yeah, so we are, yeah, we are, we are still open. All, all of our funds are, are still open. Um, we're available for accredited investors. Um, and so, you know, if you are accredited, you can, you can reach out to us um, and we can go over all, all that type of stuff. And it's traditional, it's a partnership structure, you know, traditional terms. I think, um, uh, you know, we have probably in this new fund, we have, you know, a dozen or so partners and, you know, in our other fund, you know, so basically this fund is for people that are looking for the concentrated, uranium exposure and then our other funds are more you know if you like the uranium idea but you want some of the general stuff i mean look like i said you know you're making a big bet on uranium it's, it's going to work good or work poorly and, you know it's, it's that concentrated but you know you look in some of our other funds i mean you know like i said i mentioned that end phase is up 400 percent fulgence up 300 percent like some of these other ideas you're not going to find in a fund like this and so if you like the more diversified exposure that's 
those are much more focused on, you know, kind of the owner manager special situation, that type of investment. Um, you know, and that that's actually how this this the fund I managed got started was, you know, we had that that's our general process that kind of overarches everything. When the uranium weighting started getting up and up and up, we thought, hey, it doesn't really make sense to to have a diversified fund with such a large weighting in uranium. So we essentially kind of capped it around that 20-ish percent level and said, for anyone that's interested more fully fleshing out this uranium theme, we'll set up this new fund. And you know, it's it's been pretty um it's been pretty uh people have shown a, a lot of interest in it you know especially either current clients or guys that were interested in the theme so you know yeah just just reach out to us i mean you can find us on our website uh you know you can reach out to us on twitter we're pretty good we you know we talk to a lot of people in direct messages so there's a lot of ways to get a get a hold of us give us a call i mean we always are, are happy to talk about it so um you know we would look forward to, to talking to anybody Okay. Well, Brian, let's leave it there. It was really good to catch up. Uh, thanks for coming on the show and we'll speak again soon. Thanks, Andrew.